Here we are. Good afternoon, everyone. I love the little afternoon version of Office Hours with my early bird friend, Mikey Diamond. We usually are rocking and rolling early in the morning. And uh, that song has a little kick. Diamond Life Fuel has a little kick. And our friend Rob Meyerson has a little kick. He's a brand consulting for Heirloom, heirloomagency.com. And uh, want to talk about your new book, my friend, Brand Naming, The Complete Guide to Creating a Name for a Company, Product, or Service. And I always find it interesting, Rob, how much time people spend on a name. Uh, and I've had multiple discussions with big brands, little brands, startup brands about naming. And do you believe that a brand name uh, is made up front, it makes a difference, or do you think a company can create the brand name uh, and how is that interrelation between the actual product services and solutions making a name or the name making the product service or solution? Yeah, it's an interesting question, David, and th thanks to you and Mike for having me on the show. Um, well, it depends what you mean by make a name. I mean, I think the name, the, the word or words that you're using for the name have to be created uh, before you launch. But I think what you're getting at is that the the meaning of the name is not always all that important. Um, and I don't mean to downplay it. Of course, you don't want it to mean something terribly negative or something like that. But a lot of names don't really mean much until the company has been in business for a few months or a few years. And then they take on whatever meaning is sort of given to them by the product, by the company, by the service. And they start to just take on that meaning uh, and people pretty naturally can understand even a new completely made up word um, if, if it's given meaning by the company. So, so in, in, in relation to saying that, you say, is it more how you market that name or is it the niche or is it like how catchy the name is? If it doesn't have the meaning, you know what I mean? Like, could you go deeper into that? Yeah, there's a lot of different things that can make a name good or bad. Um, so uh, I, I do think meaning is one of those. Um, so a lot of names do tell you something about the brand, uh, either something meaningful or substantive, like what does this brand do? But a lot of times it might just be kind of the personality of the brand. So even a name like Google, which most people thought was a completely made up word when it went live, um, at least told you like, this is a lot different from everything else out there. It's not Netscape or Alta Vista or, or any of these other kind of very tech um, sounding names of the, of the 90s. Um, so I think it's important to, to think about uh, the meaning of the name, the sound of the name, um, what it's gonna look like. Uh, it's important that it's differentiating. You were asking about catchiness. So I think that having it be memorable and distinctive are two things that are pretty much always uh, gonna be good qualities of a strong brand name. Um, but you, you can actually go wrong by, by making the name too meaningful. So I'll give you an example, um, Pizza Hut. Uh, and Radio Shack, both brand names that really tell you exactly what those companies do or did. Um, but now, years, decades later, uh, Pizza Hut does more than pizza. They've tried to rebrand as The Hut, and it hasn't really gone very well. Radio Shack, I mean, nobody, uh, I think my kids probably don't even know what a radio is. Um, and they tried to rebrand as The Shack, kind of very similar to The Hut, and that also didn't work. So you can paint yourself into a corner with a name that's too descriptive 
Um, and that's why a lot of companies go for these names that are at least a little bit uh, more open-ended um, that can pay off in the long run. And to that open-endedness, uh, there are many more variables. And, you know, when I got involved in this branding game over 35 years ago in the early 90s, trying to figure out, and then in later years for even athletes and celebrities, with all the different platforms that people find these brands and the brand names, uh, the number of letters became important. Uh, the availability of domain uh, became important. Uh, beyond in the expense beyond those became very important. How much of you know the complete guide of creating a name falls within just logistics and statistics of finding the right letters, the right domains, et cetera? Yeah, well, a, a huge part of it is about the technical aspects of getting a name. So I think a lot of people tend to focus on the creative aspect of naming, which makes sense. But um, what, what people sometimes don't know, um, if they don't have your experience, is that so much of it is about legal availability, um, linguistic viability. So especially if you're going to be doing, uh, which almost every business now uh, does business in multiple geographies because they're online, or at least with people who speak different languages. And so if you have a name that means something offensive in another language or just sounds terrible or it's hard to pronounce in another language. That's another kind of technical constraint. Um, domain name availability is certainly a part of it and a concern, but I think a lot of companies have kind of gone too far in the direction of trying to find a perfect .com. And by doing that, because there's so little availability now, you end up with these awful names that are just misspelled and hard to pronounce, don't make any sense. Um, with lots of Z's and X's and, and things like that. Um, and it's funny to see how technology changes and changes the way people name things. It used to be businesses wanted names that started with A, so they'd be at the front of the phone book. Obviously, nobody's concerned with that anymore. So now it's more about um, the domain. But I think the universal truth throughout uh, all of the, these changes of technology is that a good name is a good name. And it's probably more important to get that name than to get exactly the right.com. You can usually add a descriptive word after your name. Um, you know, whatever you do, whether it's a, you know, if it's a coffee shop, you can add coffee at the end and get the .com. Um, and that's usually a better route to take uh, than just getting the exact.com of a really awful, hard to pronounce name. <laughs> so do you think like if someone, cause I, I remember the guys from Tap Out for years, someone had stolen their domain and they had to fight to get it back and cost them you know, in like 500 grand in the end, they only lost everything. If you if you created a brand and a business and you didn't realize that someone owned the domain, would you stick with that? Or would you be creative and add some other nuances to it? So just to create your own brand and name and domain? Well, we'd always check um, throughout the process. So before I even show uh, names that I'm recommending to a client, I will have checked the .com as well as looking for legal availability. So. Um, just because somebody else owns the .com, I would stick with the name. Um, you know, if it's a competitor, uh, then that probably is going to result in legal issues. If it's something, uh, you know, if it's a porn site, they just don't want to be associated with that. Then I'm going <laughs> to let them know that, and you know, maybe even though they could legally get the name, they, they don't want to. Um, but generally, if it's just some company somewhere happens to own that domain, I'm going to still recommend the name and just tell my client, look, you, you're going to have to get a .net or a .org, or you're gonna have to add a word and I'll help them come up with that solution. Um, but you'd be surprised, you know, sometimes you can also just buy the domain, even if somebody's using it, um, they may be willing to let go of it for, for a price that's reasonable. Um, and so 
it's that's one of the big reasons I don't rule out names just because somebody has the .com. You know, in my teaching, just as far as making business decisions, and I wrote a book, Game Time Decision Making, based off of how do we prioritize? How do we prioritize what's important versus urgent? And I think one of the most interesting aspects of your book is the prioritization process of being able to whittle down what is the best name because it definitely gets to a point as i've been in naming sessions for years of paralysis by analysis and the more cooks in the kitchen the more paralysis occurs and as we all know prioritization is the antidote to paralysis or procrastination um and you have some secrets in that book i was hoping that you could share one of the secrets of prioritization that you have in the book uh, that we can utilize not only to whittle down the list of, of brands, but I think it's also applicable to prioritization in business and life. Yeah, great point. So it might surprise people to know that when we come up with names, we generally come up with hundreds, if not over a thousand ideas for a company or product. And the reason is exactly what you just said, that whittling down process, um, a lot of it because of a lack of legal availability um, will get us quickly from 500 ideas down to top 20 or something like that. But to your point, even with 20 ideas, the, the hardest part often is making the decision. And that's why so much of the book is dedicated to not coming up with name ideas, not um, vetting the name ideas, but just helping people make a decision. Um, because you know ultimately the project is a failure if they wind up with five names they love but can't choose one. Um, and so some of the different tips in the book, uh, a lot of it comes down to presenting, how you present ideas. And I think this is applicable whether it's names or logos or an ad concept. Um, a big part of it is in priming the audience. Um, so letting them know how much work has gone into this so that they don't feel like these are just off the cuff ideas. Um, helping them understand some of the typical knee-jerk reactions that people have, because these are these are often sort of unnatural situations. Most people who are looking at names or, or logos or something else, this is not what they do every day. They don't make decisions like this every day. And so helping them understand, because you've done it a million times, this is how people think about these. These are the mistakes they make in trying to make this decision. Um, putting that out there up front will often help alleviate the, the process on the back end so that when inevitably uh, people feel themselves having that knee-jerk reaction, they, they can think to themselves, oh, they told me I would feel like this. They told me that I would expect, you know, the obvious name to jump off the page at me. And yet uh, nobody ever, that rarely ever happens. Um, and so that that feeling I'm having now, even though it's uncomfortable, is normal. And that'll help them move through the process. You know, it reminds me, Mike and Rob, uh, way back when uh, Anderson Consulting changed over to Accenture. Famous, and famous Anderson Accenture. Consulting did our M&A deal at uh, West Publishing with Thomson Reuters in the early 90s. Um, but I was involved with Accenture or Anderson Consulting uh, at that time. And they ran uh, for a logo competition, uh, a million dollar prize to only their employees. So their employees being the greatest business consultants in the world, greatest educated, you know, from the best business schools. And I thought it was one of the most enjoyable things ever to see supposedly the greatest business minds come up with a logo for a million dollar prize, which was the greater than sign. Uh, and I can imagine we, you know, when I read 
you know, your book and the step-by-step process of, you know, figuring out a name or a logo, I was thinking to myself, could you imagine how many submissions they had and what process they went to, to take the greatest business consultants in the world working for Anderson Consultant or Accenture and coming up with the greater than sign for a multi-billion dollar organization (laughs) that was going to lead all the biggest companies in America. So I I was thinking about what you do and sometimes how simple the most powerful brands and logos are because it resonates. And I always say the universe loves simplicity. So if something's simple, it's a good sign that it's right and it carries the right frequency. Uh, Mike, you have a question real quick? No, no, I'm good. All right. Well, awesome, Rob. Any any last piece of advice uh, on either brand building, which you host a great podcast, How Brands Are Built, uh, and incorporated in how brands are built are the names and the logos as, as well as other things that are utilized. Um, anything we missed uh, that you'd like to share before we let you go? Well, I'll just touch on that that last point you made. Um, you know, when, when you ask people what are the best brand names out there, a lot of people will say Apple um, or, or they'll pick a Nike or a couple others. But uh, again, if you if you actually were to show them names like that today, they, they probably wouldn't like them. And so uh, it's a very strange psychology to this, but because Apple is so successful and it's one of the biggest and best brands in the world, people now feel like that was a brilliant name idea. But if you really do the thought experiment of putting yourself in the shoes of somebody having to make that decision uh, back in the 70s, I'm sure it felt absolutely ridiculous to name a computer company. You know, the other guys out there were Commodore, IBM. They sounded sort of big and technical. Texas. To give it a name. Yeah. To give it a name like Apple, I'm sure they got got laughed out of rooms and, you know, people told them that's a dumb idea. And so, um, you know, don't be afraid to to take some risks. Uh, Try to put yourself in uh in the shoes of you know somebody looking at this a few years later once the brand has been built and is successful and uh and you know don't don't let that analysis by paralysis keep you uh from doing something that could be great for your brand no doubt i never would have picked heirloom so heirloom <laughs> uh awesome and <laughs> yeah and I've, and I've had people tell me it's not the right the right idea but these these names they they feel thank you they feel I like uh, it but they yeah, I like meta. I like meta that. too. So I like there meta. That was yeah, the, these things that feel so strange at first, they feel uh, right after just a few months or years. And so you have to stick to your guns when you're launching a new brand name or a new brand. Well, you are an expert at that. Everybody join our friend Rob Myerson on the How Brands Are Built podcast. Read his book, How Brands Are Built. And most importantly, his latest book, Brand Naming. If you have any types of decisions around logos and brand naming, He's your guy to reach out to in the books to buy. Uh, thanks so much, Rob. We'll have you back on. We appreciate you. Thank you, guys. I appreciate it. All right, Rob. Have a great day. So oh, fascinating, okay. right? Real simple yeah. and fascinating. He knows his stuff. I, you always know a guy who knows his stuff because he's just right on top of the answers with very um, not, Yeah, you know, it's like he's not yeah. blown smoke up uh, Mike's ass, <laughs> which is good. Um, anyway, speaking of blowing smoke up your ass, we'll bring on the next person. Uh, executive chairman of all the companies. Uh, he's, uh, sorry about that. <laughs> <What>? <laughs> uh, racing team owner. Uh, I, I wanted to make an exhaust joke, but it kind of came out the wrong way. He's blowing smoke. He's blowing smoke out of his ass. Uh, so 
I don't know if that's a good thing or a bad thing. It doesn't it sound that bad, bad. Actually, no, you tell you tell me, but uh, you know you know your space, uh, and love <laughs> love to discuss the racing business, uh, college racing, and how uh, entrepreneurship now plays such an integral part in NASCAR in racing. You know, it really has gone beyond just you know a branding opportunity for logos, um, and now it's truly an entrepreneurial venture that's has sustainable technologies and huge money behind it beyond the marketing uh, brand of that. Now, how long has your family been involved in uh, the racing field and how does your entrepreneurial experience apply to what you're doing today? Yeah, well, uh, first of all, it's great to talk to you. It's great to see you. And, um, you know, I've been in it since, you know, so I started a company called Leaf Filter back in 2005. And uh, so just as the brand got bigger, as we started opening more locations nationwide and we're looking for ways, we weren't, we weren't national yet, but we're looking for ways to, to, be, to grow our brand and be more recognizable, especially as we were going down south. I had the opportunity to sponsor one of the, one of the other NASCAR teams. So uh, just for about two years, had, uh, had our logo on the car and, and would take some some customers, some some of our employees down to the races, and ha- had fun with it. And as we started to brand the racing car and everything else throughout our company, and it almost became a, a almost a, a feeling, a theme of our company is racing and be fast and and just all that stuff. Um, you know, started to talk to some of the other team owners in NASCAR. And all the some of the people were in the garage and the executives, and then you know we were spending more money on advertising on and with Lee Filter, and you know I just thought, man, even knowing and being entrepreneurial, I thought, man, I, I think I could do I think I could do this better than these guys can. So uh, so I started looking into it, just like all of us do with everything. It's you start looking into it and start investigating, and then and then getting interested in the actual business side of it. And, and then I did. I, I grabbed uh, who is now our president. Uh, his name's Chris Rice and sat down with him and went over exactly what it would look like to start a team. You know, it's like it's one of those things where, um, you know, and I, I used to say this. It's like if you want to start a major league baseball team or a football team, you can't just start one. Um, you know, and it was that was similar in NASCAR. You can't just you couldn't just start a team. Usually you have to acquire one or buy one. But we literally started one in the Xfinity series from scratch. I mean, we didn't have a race shop. We built I mean, true entrepreneurial, like just get it done. When I started Lee Filter, I started it out of my house. So worked out of my house for two years, uh, you know, before we even got an office. And uh, and so it was almost a similar thing. Didn't work out of my house with NASCAR, but, you know, we're just started with just a few people and then it's just really grown uh, from there. So um, so this we're coming into our seventh season. And uh, David, just like you were saying, it's it's become the business of NASCAR has become an entrepreneurial you know, venture where, you know, you almost have to be now you have to buy charters. You have to buy charters. You almost have to own like a franchise type, you know, model, um, you know, which which is which is great. Uh, but, you know, the days of you were just a race car driver and then you got you just wanted to go racing on Sundays. Uh, I mean, that 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 ship has sailed. Question. Two questions. Do you still have the leaf home business? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. 
and it's still it's still kicking ass. And so when you first started, how much capital did you have to raise? Because you're going in as novices. You know, you don't. You, I don't know what your background in NASCAR, but you're going like, all right, let's just. Yeah. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? But it's like you go straight in. It's unbelievable. Yeah. Well, we have to raise it. Yeah, well, we started, uh, so from the racing standpoint, I mean, how much capital did I, I had capital just because of, of sponsoring, of, of Leaf Filter. So yeah. even as Leaf Filter, I was, um, you know, I was, then we were actually sponsoring ourselves. I legit, and we still do, we still run the Leaf Filter car and, and still spend money and still advertise because it's a great marketing. You know, we know how to use it. We knew how to use it. And so if I was going to spend all that money on somebody else's team, then I might as well be able to control, 100% control it. Um, you know, and the whole thing was about even going fast. You know, I don't know how much you know about NASCAR, but, I mean, there's teams that sometimes are in it just to be running around the track, and then other times you're, you're spending money and going to get the best drivers and everything else to, to be able to go win trophies. Um, so uh, – I wanted to be able to go fast and go win trophies, but that does take, you know, money. And it's been, you know, it's, it's, been, we're going into our seventh year. Um, but, you know, like I said, from the beginning, you know, we didn't, I didn't need much capital. Well, you do, well, I shouldn't say, that's ridiculous to say. It doesn't seem like that much capital now, but I guess it, it was a lot. So, yeah. yeah, it was a lot. I'm not, yeah, I'm not gonna. It was a lot. Two, two things, though. You're already spending a lot. And then, two, one of the things I find interesting I don't know if you know this about me, uh, but your family office, the Colin Companies, uh, mm -hmm. is located in the greatest place in America to be from uh, Akron, Ohio. LeBron James, Steph yep. Curry, and Dave Meltzer are all from Akron, Ohio. And uh, I didn't know you were from Akron. Oh, yeah. So. <laughs> Uh, big fan, but you know, speaking of those roots in one of the most entrepreneurial cities in the world, historically, uh, Akron, Ohio and Dayton, Ohio with the Wright brothers, uh, yeah. Ohio in general, but you were already operating in these types of verticals. You really knew the business side of sports and entertainment, marketing, event management, finance and financial services, which is critical That's right. uh, in NASCAR as well, consumer products. Uh, and of course, uh, as all great Buckeyes, philanthropy is a huge part of what you do. Uh, giving back is just within the collective consciousness of being from Ohio and it's of even the Midwest, I think, just a greater awareness to how can we do well to yep. do good. And, you know, you guys have won the championship series here with Xfinity, mm -hmm. but you really your objective is to do well so you can do good. Um, how has that manifested itself in the racing business well it's a, it's a really good and i appreciate that we uh it's a it's a really good attitude i found to have with uh with all of our companies you know to to say the more we can make the more we can give and and we truly we truly live that way um you know especially up here in northeast ohio so we've been you know i just did a show uh this morning on on uh with on fox the local fox affiliate fox 8 and we do um, we we actually highlight every single newscast, a person, a a charity or a company that are doing great things in Northeast Ohio. So literally every single newscast, our colleague charitable giving programs like highlights a person every single day. And then every month we highlight an organization, you know, do like a five minute segment on highlighting and how people can help 
um, you know, a, a charity organization. We've given to, as colleague giving, we've given to 150 501c3 organizations, um, you know, over the last few years. So, I mean, we we not only want to, you know, it's it's one thing just giving money, you know, to an organization, or I mean, it, it, you, we can do that, but we actually want to help uh, and want to help the structure of the organization. Um, we want to responsibly give, like we have a couple of people, uh, Stacy Langles are, are the director of our charitable giving programs. And, and she does a really great job of, of responsibly giving, making sure there's a lot of organizations out there that, that take money. I mean, if we're going to give a thousand dollars to the organization, or if we're going to give $10,000 to the organization, then $1,000 goes to helping the kids. And then $9,000 goes to, you know, paying the, the CEO. So uh, we want to make sure that that doesn't happen. Um, and so it's it's a really big part of, of what we do. So even talking about that with NASCAR and with racing, um, we've tried to be a, an example of being leaders, uh, not only on the track, but off the track. And so we get involved really with the NASCAR Foundation. Um, you know, I just went down there. Actually, we had Speedy Bear on the on the uh, show, to, or his name Safety Sam. It's a... Um, you know, it's it's the it's the bear that is like the the mascot. But we're we're leading the way with the NASCAR Foundation in the fact that we're going around to nine tracks, um, you know, this this summer and teaching kids about like living healthy and exercising and, and doing the doing the right thing and about teamwork. We just went down to the NASCAR Hall of Fame last week and, and taped with with uh, with one of our drivers, Justin Haley, and our pit crew. And so we're, we're doing videos. And then me as an owner, really doing videos to help these kids and show these kids and run them through like pit stops. And, and this is what I look for on my team. And this is how you have to act in the classroom and in the community. And um, so we do a lot there. We gave away, um, and this is actually a really cool thing in racing. Uh, a few months ago was national, you know, they have national, there was national teddy bear day. You have a national day for, I, you know, for everything, but it was national teddy bear day. So one of the, uh, one of the things that we did with the NASCAR foundation was called the speedy bear brigade. We gave away 57. We went to 50 hospitals, gave away 5,700 of the teddy bears, uh, you know, with race cars and everything else to these kids. Um, you know, that are in the hospitals. We're really into, we're into the kids and the, the their direct families. I mean, that's where we do most of our giving. But, you know, you figure, hey, not, not one kid wants to be in the hospital, whether they're sick or injured or they got in an accident. I mean, they don't want to be there. So if we can walk in with and give them a teddy bear from the NASCAR Foundation, uh, you know, hopefully that brightens their day. And so those are just some of the things that that we're doing in racing with NASCAR, um, you know, with with each of our teams, it was Giving Tuesday a few, what, in, in November. And, you know, one of the things we did with everybody in our race team, actually everybody in our company, we gave $1,000 to one of their charities of choice. You know, again, teaching philanthropy, not just doing philanthropy. Yeah. Um, and so at any rate, we're, we're teaching people how to do that. You know, what you find is that people don't know how to give. It's like they they want to give, but they don't know how. I mean, they don't know what a you know the the people they're like, hey, fill out your five hundred one c three paperwork and what's the 
so we we had them do that. They had to go get the organization, get the name of the director. What's the 501c3 number? And uh, I mean, it's like when you start a business, like, okay, I want to open a checking account. Okay, well, what's your, what's your, uh, EIN you know, number? What's your, yeah, EIN number? Right. And you're no, like, I yeah, know that all the time. So anyway. <laughs> Well, we certainly appreciate uh, the in entrepreneurial vision that you've had, the success that you have, I'm sure, continue because of the values and practices that you've implemented from your business onto the track and then onto uh, philanthropy as well. Like I said, you're an icon of doing well to do good. And from my hometown of Akron, Ohio, makes me even prouder. We'll have to Go, go out to Swenson's for lunch when I get there next. Uh, hey, they just opened—they just opened a new location in Brooklyn. Did you Brooklyn. see that? I yeah. know. I called LeBron again because I've been begging him. We're too far in California; they won't let us open them yet. But I'm looking at Indy. I'm going to go to Indy first. I got to own my own one, and uh, I, I yeah. want to get them in Indianapolis. That's close enough to Columbus and uh, Brooklyn, so we should be good. Uh, but yes, anyone out there, check out Swenson's. But more importantly. Matt Colleg, thank you so much, Executive Chairman of Colleg Companies. And if you have not checked out the championship team, Colleg Racing Team owner at the Xfinity Series himself. Matt, thank you so much for Thanks, all sir. you do. We'll see you soon. Let's do more. I'll bring you on my TV show, too. We got to promote you more. Let's do it. Awesome. You thank, you. thank you. Take care. Bye, Matt. That was awesome. Yeah, There's just a certain bond. It's probably like people from uh, Australia. You know, you just have that bond immediately. <laughs> I just think it's crazy that um, I didn't know you were from Akron. Hey, buddy, Akron. I didn't know you were from Akron. Yeah, man. That's I was born in the same hospital as LeBron James and Steph Curry. I was thought I was destined to be the NBA commissioner. My name was David. <laughs> I was short, a lawyer, in sports. I thought for sure. Well, you, know, you knew you weren't going to be a point guard. No. <laughs> I, so I was at, uh, just so you know, I was at Travis Matthew, the great golf brand yesterday, and then a basketball court. And I grabbed the ball on the basketball court, went behind the back, perfect layup, no cameras on me, right? Perfect layup right through the thing. Everybody's on press. So then they're like, do it again for the camera. I tried like six or seven times. It was horrendous. And I'm like, I suck. Oh, my God. I got to be the commissioner. And they're all laughing at me, having a great time. Uh, but, you know, the camera's got to be on you to make it happen. Anyway. We are right on schedule. Chad Willardson is here, president and founder of Pacific Capital. Um, and, you know, talk about a topic near and dear to my heart. I've partnered with the incredible Hall of Fame running back, Marshall Falk, in a financial literacy uh, program. And most importantly, financially, financial literacy for kids and families, uh, to me, is at the forefront. Uh, and I tell you, Chad, appreciate all that you do because you. it's not just the kids in at-risk neighborhoods, right? It's, it's kids at private schools. Um, I'm, I, people ask me all the time, how'd you lose a hundred million dollars, Dave? And I will tell you that one of the reasons was that although I had a law degree and went to business school and hyper-educated, surrounded myself with the richest people on earth, um, I was financially literate. I, right. I, Nobody taught me financial literacy. I didn't understand timing and risk tolerance. I didn't understand, you know, how markets, market makers and margins were made. I, you know, I, I was financially illiterate. And I think it's a bigger pandemic than the pandemic when we look to the future of America, uh, this financial literacy issue that we have. So for you, how big of an issue is it? I know you support so many kids and families, 
But yeah. can you come from the fiduciary world? Right. How big of an issue is it? And, and what is it going to uh, cause for the future? You know, that's the that's the thing, Dave. It's like we think it's it's not us, but it is us. It's everyone. It's every family. I think that the challenge is, is that kids just aren't getting taught these kind of financial skills, not at home and definitely not in the schools. Um, that's why I wrote my second book called Smart Not Spoiled. I just felt like our entrepreneur clients were very concerned about having this wealth and success and abundance and like, how do I not ruin my kids? I want them to learn financial skills, but I didn't really learn it as a kid. I kind of got my MBA and PhD in, in the school of hard knocks, you know, and- it's a Dummy tax, right? <laughs> yeah, exactly, dummy tax. And, um, you know, so Smart Not Spoiled, the book actually led me to a partnership, David, that I actually found out that you're on the cap table. You're one of our investors of uh, Gravy Stack. So Gravy Stack is the financial banking app for kids that we're launching in April. We're really gamifying and make, making like banking and financial skills and financial literacy really fun for kids. And I think that's something that's going to stretch across the whole nation and beyond as it gets traction. So I'm really excited about that. I have a question for you. So the book says uh, stress-free money, overcoming the seven obstacles. For the people listening, can you yeah. give us like at least two or three of the obstacles that people are perfect? The book's right there. Yeah, there it is. People yeah, are, so are facing. So you can totally. So stress-free money, my first book is really about financial freedom mindsets. And it's, it's more for the adults, the entrepreneurs. The second book is more about you know, teaching kids, but the obstacles I see as the first kind of challenges is that people don't have clear goals. And it seems so basic, but people come in with a lot of money, a lot of success, they have high income, they've got all this stuff, but they don't know what they want. And so what do they end up doing? They just end up investing in all kinds of opportunities that come across their desk. And there's no real coordination. There's nothing that's really aiming at anything together. And, you know, you've heard that quote, you can't hit a target that you don't see that you don't have. And so that's what these people are doing. It's like, well, how do I know if my investments are doing well? You know, I have nothing to compare it to. I don't have not aiming towards anything. And so the first thing that we do for people is really just look at, let's really get down to the nitty gritty. Like, what are your goals? What do you want? Uh, we just talked to a couple this morning and they're like, you know, we want to take our adult children and grandchildren on an incredible tropical trip once a year like a two week experience where we're all making memories together as a family, everyone's spread out. And so that's something we can actually build on the plan and say, how much does that cost? What are some places and destinations you want to go to? So that's one of the things that I think people, they miss the mark, no matter how much money they have, like you said, David, it affects everyone. So, yeah. And I got heavily involved in my first sale.com, which yes. is yep. your, your website. And, um, in support of it. And one of the things that I found intriguing about the second book, when we're talking about to, that is more geared to the basics, you know, just simple things that we need to know um, was your explanation in the idea of timing and risk tolerance. Sure. Um, and I find it, you know, not only on the mindset and hard set side of things, but, you know, the practicality of the handset of investing that, you know, my first question to someone that's young that's talking about blockchain nfts cryptos amc reddit you know mm -hmm. the, the robin hood group you know is I'll, I'll you know not doubt what they're saying but i'll just ask them okay if you want to invest in this crypto or this nft or or amc 
what's your timing and risk tolerance? And have you asked someone uh, that sits in a situation that's been there or is there, you know, if this investment is aligned with that timing and risk tolerance, uh, because look, if your timing and risk tolerance is to buy a $2 lottery ticket to win a billion dollars, and you know, you have a one in a billion chance of doing so when you lose your money, you're happy. Right. You got exactly what you aligned with. The problem is most people go into opportunities with just trust, trusting. They don't vet. They have yep. no idea what their objectives are, yep. this timing and risk tolerance. And therefore, the, whether, you know, the, the worst to me are the people that make money and aren't happy because they don't know their timing and risk tolerance. And they don't know well enough that they've already achieved and they think somehow they got shorted, cheated, or they should have done better. Meanwhile, you know, especially now today with the volatility of so many different investments, they do two, three, four thousand percent of a gain, and they think somehow it's not enough because yep. they haven't aligned it. What are I, some of the basics of understanding these objectives? You talked about the vacations, but there's some yeah. basics of timing and risk tolerance that you talk about in your second book. Yeah, I would say one of those things that is clarity before you invest, and it's clarity on expectations and maybe on exit strategy. So it's it's interesting. Most investors and even younger investors are looking at entry points of like, when do I buy my, you know, when do I put money in my crypto wallet? When do I invest in the NFTs? When do I buy into the stock market? But they don't really think about an exit strategy. They don't think about what's the volatility I'm willing to tolerate. Or that I think the most important part is probably the time length of your investment. You know, how long do you, are you comfortable waiting around and investing what are your expectations because like you said you could have an investment that goes up 10x and if their expectation is 20x and it was not a well-informed expectation they feel dissatisfied with the investment so i think understanding the risk categories of each investment both the upside and the downside and then also looking at the time horizon is this something that i'm trying to make money from in a short amount of time or maybe I'm investing in commercial real estate and these are properties I want to have in my family for generations, you know, and it's going to be a nice cash flow and have a lot of tax benefits. So I think going into investment decisions with, with more clear expectations, understanding the risk upside and the downside, and then also looking at the time length of how long am I going to be committing money to this particular investment? Those are all very important. Chad, do you think we're going on two things that from what you and Dave are saying, especially time and expectations, that people are a little bit unrealistic with the timing of how things should drop? So yeah. they, they hear Dave go, oh, I made $100 million. And they're like, well, why can't I make $100 million yeah. in a weekend? Or yeah. someone sold their NFT for $10 million. Do you think that's another thing when people set their goals? They're a little bit optimistically delusional. Yes. And they're not looking at something and going, wait it does take time for this to manifest because everyone's like, oh, I can manifest in law of attraction. It doesn't work like that. Things have a natural progression. So do you think that's another problem with the time and risk tolerance? Mike, the expectations and the understanding of risk tolerance is the challenge where people are seeing, essentially trying to keep up with the Instagram Joneses. And they're seeing things online, whereas, you know, maybe this was a, this is someone who got famous or got really successful but they didn't see the grind. They didn't see the failures. They didn't see the losses. And that's the same when it comes to investing. People are not highlighting their big investment mistakes. They're highlighting the best of the best winners. And therefore, 
we see the best of the best winners and we expect that as a normal occurrence. And like you said, Mike, that's the challenge is people come in with these expectations of like, well, someone got 15 X in this particular investment. I should get 15 X too. And then you're tempted to actually chase returns. And now you're, you're going down the rabbit hole of trying to do something that already happened. And it's, you know, it's never guaranteed. Yeah. I see a lot, you know, like a crap stable, the guy that I watch and sits there and, you know, he has one role and, and everyone's like, oh my God, this guy's up, you know, 12 grand. Meanwhile, I've seen him throw away a hundred grand in markers. Yeah. Yeah. And like, everyone's like, why does he always win? Well, because yeah. he's only telling you about his winnings. And yeah, uh, you know, it's so, so, so interesting. I will tell you one of the things I did in my career is I took $20 million and put 10, $2 million investments into startups. Mm. And, you know, I was very successful because one of them uh, doubled my uh, total amount of money. One, one of them I exited at a 40 million uh, wow. exit on my 2 million. Wow. I lost every penny of the other nine. All, right. there you go. All my friends and family right. would brag on, you know, what amazing year I had, what a great investor I was, yep. what an absolute Midas genius I was. And I never told anyone until I learned about telling the truth uh, <laughs> that I literally just played a numbers game and, Got very lucky that I got one out of 10, right? Uh, and I see this all the time. To that point, you are a financial fiduciary, which yes. makes a big difference compared to a financial planner. Right. Uh, and and I, I try to stress people that if, especially if you're a high net wealth individual, that you should use a fiduciary because uh, they are vetted and, and trusted in a different light uh, and, and, and rightfully so. Um, but you're an entrepreneur yourself. Yes. And you own a sports training, a lot of synergies with me, right? Sports training complex, your first, my first sale.com. I love you're launching an app to, you know, financial literacy for kids and money. But even though you're dealing as a fiduciary with high net wealth individuals, what's the biggest mistake that you see that runs concurrent through the richest and poorest people that you work with? I think the biggest challenge people face is the emotional the emotional side of money decisions. I really think that's the hardest thing for people. It doesn't matter how wealthy you are. You feel connected to some investments. You feel excited. You feel nervous. You feel worried when the markets are down. Um, I think that's a challenge that really you, it's hard to step outside of your own feelings when it comes to money decisions. And so as a fiduciary who is a very active investor and entrepreneur, my clients are also very much similar to me. They have seven to eight figure income. They're, they're active, they're family oriented. They, a lot of them have, you know, faith-based backgrounds of people they care about. They're charitable, but they, they want to make a difference and they want to also grow their investments. And the challenge becomes when they're too much in the middle of those decisions that they, they can't really see the clear picture. And so as an objective fiduciary, our team is going to look at everything for them and really give them the pros and the cons and different scenarios and help them think through and make the best decision possible, not getting caught up in the emotional side of being attached to certain money decisions. I think that's a challenge that we all face, no matter how, what your net worth is. Yeah. And that was the biggest adjustment that I made uh, because I am, like I said, someone that was financially illiterate, lost over a hundred million dollars in 2008 and have utilized uh, relationship with money and a fiduciary to yeah. predetermine 
uh, not only my financial responsibility, but my emotional responsibility, there you, go. Uh, you know, because I spent a lot of time, money and emotion on things I didn't know about uh, instead of focusing in on things that I did know about that derived revenue, I started dissipating and dissolving my emotions into things that, uh, you know, would capture all my time. And so not only was I losing money in things I didn't know about, but I was losing time, emotion and value in the things that I did know about. So I cut myself off on both sides of the equation mm -hmm. and fiduciaries help you not only with the back end side of what you've already made, but they actually believe it or not because of this emotional component allow us to make more money, help more people and have more fun, which is why I wanted Chad Willardson to come on here. Not only are we working together on several different projects, but doing well to doing good seems to be the theme today, which we uh, applaud you for those efforts as well. Chad, come back and join us. Thank you for all you do. for Thank the you so much. I'm glad to be involved in uh, my first sale and uh, your gravy snack. Yeah, profit. it's exciting. Thank, Thank you very you much, guys. Appreciate it. Take care. What a great episode. Always. Yeah. You know what I, what I got from today? You know um, what I got from today is you didn't smile what? once. I did say. So. <laughs> you, you were the more serious one than me. What the heck? I was, no, it's just like it was really interesting to me because I was like really sitting on things going, hmm, hmm, that's really good. It was making me think. It was making me think a lot about stuff, how – like we get caught up in comparison and you you said this i watched one of your clips and i love the story about the two the fishermen yeah how you, you try to convince him to get more boats and he, he goes yeah but i'll still see you know I'll spend time with my kids and i don't want to be the richest guy in the cemetery right. and i think it's such a great story that people don't understand they should go watch the clip that you know i had a friend a, a conversation with a friend of mine that i've known for 30 years and she said she she lives this really humble life and Perth's on lockdown and and she's like, do you ever take time for yourself just to do nothing? I said, yeah, well, I meditate. And that she goes, no, shut up. Maybe just sit with yourself sometimes and just do nothing. And I think what you just said it really resonated with me is that you know you lost a hundred million, but you were illiterate in certain areas. And sometimes we've got to just sit with ourselves and know we're okay and not race and just slow down and say, what do I want? Why do I want it? And what's the end game? And just, just take your time, just take your time and then do the work and don't expect these. You can't manifest things in a minute. Things will come. There's going to be winters. You know, I think you say it beautifully when you talk about the NFT game and your risk tolerance, know there is going to be risk in everything you do but be okay with that and don't take it emotional and personal you know and today was like really interesting for me because i was listening to everyone who took massive risks but they're prepared emotionally to deal with those risks and it's just it was a really good you know it made me really think like wow yeah you got to slow down and just sit in these things yeah you know? i love that and it was obvious too and i think my obvious one was all three of our guests you know chad robin um uh I'm losing my mind you know we had uh <laughs> <laughs> guy is it guy matt my acronym yeah matt matt robin chad they all are the epitome of doing well to do good you know yeah. the money the money did not lead any one of these three great entrepreneurs rob matt or chad money follows them because they're doing well to do good and that's their motivation and i think 
uh, that uh, Matt said it really well, right? I can't give what I don't have in his context, something that I had to shift my paradigm of giving into not a value, uh, a zero sum game, but a value add game. And, uh, you know, you being here and uh, always seeing you is a value add game for me. Uh, we have come a long way with this show and we're going even two further. years in March, yeah. April, right? Two years. Yeah, we'll be celebrating in Vegas with the TV show in the second season. Uh, all started right before COVID when Mike and I said, man, we should really do something together and office hours. And Mike's backdrop looks like an office. So we've come a long, long way from the original. <laughs> Maybe you should go look at episode one and see where Mike was. Uh, I'm stuck in the closet still. Even though I have three beautiful studios, one at the Lobby of the Wind, one at SoFi, and a beautiful new team. And like a 20-bedroom house as well, but you're stuck in the I'm closet. in the closet. Anyway, I love you, Mike Diamond. Check out Diamond Life Fuel. I'm on it every day. It's changed my life, elevating me to elevate others. Thank you. Feel better, buddy. Bye, buddy. Thank you, mate. Bye. Bye. I love that guy's smile. It's worth it every day just to come and see him. David.dmeltzer.com. If you want the secrets of life, just email me, david at dmeltzer.com. I'll be happy to send you the daily practices or the 14-day gratitude challenge. David at dmeltzer.com. Remember, most importantly, be kind to your future self and do good deeds. We'll see you tomorrow. Thanks.